Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Fabrice Duprez, CEO of Disguy, a fintech providing solutions for anti-money laundering that's raised $12 million in funding. Fabrice, thanks for chatting with me today. Thank you, Brett. I'm very well. And how are you? I'm excellent. Thanks for asking and super excited to chat with you. So am I. So let's jump right in. So to kick things off, could you just start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Okay. Well, uh, first of all, like, like you said, my name is Fabrice Duprez. I'm uh, Approaching 50 years, still in the, the 40 train, like we say here in Belgium. I'm original from a family of entrepreneurs. So my father had a company, my grandfather had a company, and it has always been my ambition to manage successfully another business. And for that, I started my career in consulting. So I've worked around 20 years in consulting business, big American companies, Accenture, uh, CNC, Deloitte, and so on. But I would say six years ago, I had the opportunity to manage a small IT company, which was, I would say, in financial difficulties. And we brought that company back with the team over a period of five years back in business with uh, a lot of growth potential. And then a little bit uh, more than one year ago, I was approached by the KBC Group, so a large financial institution in Europe, which had the idea of putting this kind of market company I managed and uh, I launched the company in March 2022, and uh, here we are. Nice. That's amazing. Now, one thing we like to ask, or a few things we like to ask, just to better understand what makes you tick as a CEO and as a leader. First one is, what CEO do you admire the most, and what do you admire about them? Well, the funny part is that the CEO I admire the most is, is basically the CEO of KBC. I already had that in mind for 20 years. I had the chance as a Accenture consultant to do a big project in the group in the early days where uh, Johan was already working. And I was basically impressed by his speed of reflection, the quality of the discussion, the impact, but also his way of approaching the things. So I would say almost 20 years later, when you get a phone call to have a discussion with him for a potential job, while you just jump into the opportunity, uh, Johan is managing a company of 43,000 employees, uh, one of the most valuable financial institutions in Europe. So when you have a chance to have a chit-chat with this kind of person, you just jump into it. And uh, at the first interview, first discussion, he re-blew my mind about the way he approached, the way he discussed, the way he he motivates, but also how he's able to combine vision with uh, which people, insights, motivation, drive. It's uh, it's impressive. That's amazing. And can you give us more context on the parent company, uh, KBC Bank? How big is this? Because a lot of our listeners are from the U.S. You know, we're going to know Chase and Wells Fargo and I guess Silicon Valley Bank now. Um, but can you give us an idea of the size of KBC Bank? So KBC, first of all, originally it's a pure Belgium bread bank, but we have also a special model. We are bank insurers. So we have a bank branch, both on retail, uh, corporate, uh, private banking, and we have also insurance entities. The company has uh, 43,000 people, sorry, spread over six different countries in Europe with a big focus on innovation, 
digitalization and drive of customer attention through uh, new technologies. Mm, fascinating. And I know at the start there, we were talking at you know, because of the structure here, you're not technically the founder of the company, you're the CEO of the company, but I have to ask, do you still consider yourself an entrepreneur? Because this, this feels like an entrepreneurial endeavor, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because the story behind the company is that KBC, like I said, wants to be innovative. So we are investing already for 15 years in cloud, 10 years in AI, artificial intelligence, machine learning. And we have developed many, many applications. And one moment we just recognized, or they recognized because I was not part of the ship at that moment, but they recognized that a number of these applications were quite unique on the market. So it was confirmed by many uh, strategy companies saying that they didn't see this on the market yet. And of course, that raised the idea, well, we can market that and generate a new revenue stream. And this is how they came to me and say, well, we have that idea. The company is in the first step of creation. Do you want to get that company on the feet? So we had to build an organization. We had to attract people. We had to develop a commercial plan, financial plan, and just go on the market and, and put the name on the street. Like I said, originally, we are in the regulatory compliance part, which is quite securized, which is quite, like I said, regulated. So as a new name with the new people, with a new product go on the market in this kind of very stable and controlled environment, well, yeah, I can say that we are still entrepreneur. We are still building step-by-step the company. And another thing we like to ask, just to better understand a bit more about you, is about books that have had a major impact on you. So this can be classic business books, or it could just be a, a personal book that you read that really influenced how you shaped the world. So do you have any books like that that come to mind? Yeah, that's a very American book. Uh, it's a very American book, very famous in many aspects. It's uh, From Good to Great. I think that this is one of the books that is on the near the bed of many consultants and people in America willing to do uh, management at a good level. I read it several times, and there are two elements that stroke my mind and I still keep in my management is that in the book, they describe how it's more important to have the right people and based on the right people, design or define what you're going to do with them than defining a job and then looking for the right person. That is one thing what I've always used in my career and which makes really sense and can help us to make a difference. So that is uh, one of the aspects. And then the second aspect, which I think that many managers forget, is that you are replaceable, uh, dispensable. So it's always the idea that you are always thinking what would do the company without me and how they would grow without me. And these are two things what, what makes, I think, the difference. And also in our little team, it's always an aspect to have the right people, not the right job, and thinking that everybody is disposable. And if, if one of us would disappear the day after the week, after the month, after the company need to be stable and continue on. Nice. Love that. Good classic American book, like you said. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But it's, it's really inspiring. Even it's more than 20 years old, it's still relevant. That's what always you know, blows my mind a little bit. I'll read some of these books that are like 20, 30, 40 years old, and somehow they're still relevant, and it's really timeless principles that haven't changed, which I think is just, uh, just fascinating to think about. When you really boil business down, it's yeah, the same stuff. No matter, no matter what the industry is, you can really boil it down to like the basics. Yeah, well, because in any business, in every business, of course, the product is important, so the market is important, but in the end, everything, what, what it turns around is around people. Even in this digital area, it's the people that counts. And 
I'm still convinced and I've seen it through my career. If you just bring the right people together, you can achieve anything. Yeah. Amazing. Now let's switch gears and let's talk about the company a bit more and more specifically the products. And it, it sounds like from the, the start of our conversation that there may be more product in the works, but I believe today it's the AML solution that you have on the market. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. So to make a long story short, because I could of course speak for hours, but it won't be a secret if, even for people not in the financial industry is that compliance is getting more and more important. The regulations are a burden on one side, but the other side, it's a saving. We've seen it in Europe, but what have happened the last few days with the banks in the US and then moving to Switzerland and, and uh, getting closer. But the regulations that have been put in place have supported heavily into the protection of the banks. So that is one really important thing. And most of the people think regulation about financial stability, liquidity of a bank, that's on one side. But of course, on the other side, there is also everything within the financial crime. Uh, so uh, mm-hmm. the financial crime can be put into two areas. Is first, protect the bank and the customers against fraud or any misconduct, or protect the government against thefts like, like money laundering is doing. And this issue is, I would say, underestimated. It's a huge problem on the financial market. It's a huge problem for countries to get the right tax uh, entrances. And regulators have been pushing a lot of this work to the banks. So banks are obliged to analyze a lot of what is happening through their books in order to identify potential money laundering. So to give you a rough idea, we have seen that in countries like like the Netherlands, like Belgium, it's multi-billions of work that is done by the bank in order to comply with regulation about identifying money laundering patterns. Right. And a money laundering for the people that don't know, it's, it's just try to get money from A to B without paying taxes. And this generates this process of analyzing is partially automated, but also still a heavy manual work done by investigation teams. And this creates a huge workload on the bank. So current systems are, I would say, not effective and efficient as they should be. Efficient means it generates a lot of manual work. Effectiveness means that's able to identify these money laundering cases in the books and current systems are just not relevant anymore. What we have brought is a solution which is AI-based, which is, I would say, mimicking and automating a part of the manual work which is done by the people, simplifying it, automating this part, which is drastically reducing the manual work, so working on the efficiency, but also supporting, thanks to technology, identified patterns which were not detected until now. So working in both aspects, efficiency and effectiveness. And if we're looking at the banks, they're under a lot of pressure right now, right? And the, the stakes are very high. I was reading a report in the media the other day, and it was, I think, like 2 or $3 billion in fines last year alone, which is obviously bad. And I think I read that Credit Suisse was one of them, right? That was one of the reasons that I think led to you know, partially led to their downfall in the recent years and and put them in this vulnerable position was they had scandal after scandal. There were a lot of fines. So this is high stakes stuff for these banks, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because in the end, what can make a bank fall is a run of the bank, meaning that people don't trust the bank anymore. They deposit back and then the company has liquidity issues and they can't fall. So Of course, the trust of the people in the bank is really important. And trust is linked to many aspects. So if a bank at one point gets into the newspaper with 
fines in money laundering, in fraud or anything. This just attacks their credibility, their reliability, and therefore could result at one moment into a fear and therefore a run on the back. Mm, yep. Makes a lot of sense. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. Now, talk to us about adoption as you've brought this technology to more banks. What's that been like so far? And are there any numbers that you can share that highlight some of that growth? Well, let's say that in general, there are some figures where are generally accepted in the, the financial industry that I would say on effectiveness is when you look, I would, let's go back in the process for people that don't know, what is the AML anti-money laundering detecting process? First of all, the bank needs to analyze their transaction. They need filter transactions and identify potential fraud cases or money laundering cases. Mm -hmm. These lists of transactions are then investigated manually by investigators, and they have a certain ratio of an older transaction that they receive. What is the ratio of false positive and true positive? So Meaning, true positive is it's an alert and it's indeed a case that needs to be reported. False positive, it is an alert, but there is nothing at the hands. So this ratio we see at many banks that they are struggling with 5%, 2%, 7% of true positives. So more than 90% of the work that the people are doing is just a false positive, meaning a work which was unnecessary. When you relate that with what is the percentage of what can be identified of money laundering is banks are struggling with 10, 15, 20% of detected cases. So if you put that, 90% of the work is non-relevant. And with a true positive they identify, they just are able to identify 10, 15, 20% of the true positives, meaning a money launder has between 5, 10, and 20% chance of being caught when they, they launder their money in the book. So these ratios are really important. With using AI in a, a good, a decent way, we are, with our solution, we are able to almost multiply this factor by three, four, or have a total three multiplied by three, a, a better performance of up to 10, 10 times. So we could reduce drastically the manual work or increase drastically the number of cases identified of a mix between that. And that's when you look at, at banks on US level or a large bank at European level, this means saving billions on the country level. So yes, that's quite an important. In Belgium, we estimate that only 5 to 10% of money laundering is detected and is collected back on tax level. So uh, if you take a country which has a turnover of GDP of uh, six, 700 billion and only 5 to 10% is identified, and you could go to 50% of identification, you can make the count of what tax level could be recuperated on the country level or the savings that could be done by a bank. Mm, fascinating. And another question, now, because you're technically part of a bank, are your customers then competitors of the bank? And if so, does that create a strange dynamic in any way? Yeah, that's a good question, Brad. Well, when we launched a company, we had the choice to launch a company with different domains or process efficiency, commercial activities could be improved thanks to AI. But we absolutely made the choice to launch the financial crime roadmap and suits of products because we said just as a bank, 
Well, this fight against the financial crime is a common fight between all banks. And this doesn't bring any commercial advantage. Of course, the bank is making savings. But on the other hand, it's a common obligation to do that correctly just to, I would say, keep the trust of the markets that the banks together are trying to solve that issue of fraud, money laundering, just for reputational damage. It's never interesting for a bank to have a big hit on the reputation of a bank near to you because it's like the domino effect. Huh? Bad reputation mm -hmm. won't reflect on you. So this fight is common. And in that optic, then the bank are all the customers we visit. So we started one year ago. We visit already 26 banks spread over Europe. We'll move to the US and Canada after the summer. Every time we receive that same answer, yes, we comply that it's a common fight and we should fight that together. Mm, got it. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and I think we're seeing that today, right? How interconnected banks really are. If one bank has issues, then every bank has issues. <laughs> At least that's what it seems like in recent weeks. Yeah, absolutely. And like, like I said, it's a domino effect and, and everything is a question of trust. So it's easy when a bank, one bank has a problem that you come in the newspaper saying, well, the other banks in the same country, well, if one is bad, well, they should be all bad, which is, I would say, not always true. But in the end, it's how the public reacts because this is how the public reacts can generate that run of the bank. So it's all in our common interest to keep the trust as high as possible for all the banks, at least at this level. And as you move country to country, so you just mentioned you'll be moving into the US there. As you do that, does the algorithm have to change? Like, is it different or is like the AI different when you move to the US from maybe you know Germany, for example, or is it all the same thing and no adaptations need to be made at a country level? Again, a good question. Well, in the AI, there are two things. Is the model that we develop which there are, or the, the code that we develop would generate and the models on a bank. Now, the basic idea behind a solution is that we do customer profiling in a very detailed way and experienced way with all the data available in the bank in order to define suspicious behavior and therefore suspicious people. Now, that process of the code in order to identify is the same. But of course, when we train a model, the model will be trained by bank by bank because, of course, the typology of a customer of a Wells Fargo won't be the same as KBC, I would say, in Belgium. The typology of the people, of the customer will be different. On the other hand, the solution just adapts itself to the typology of the customer and therefore into the process. So the code that we develop is the same, but the model that we will be training will be banking specific. Mm, got it. Makes a lot of sense. And whenever you talk about AI, I feel like it has to be brought up of, you know, potential displacement of workers. So how do you view that here? At some point, does this end up, you know, automating and, and taking away some of those jobs of KYC and AML professionals? Or is this something that more enhances them to free them from low value manual work and focus on more important work? Well, it depends a little bit how you apply it, but I'm convinced that in the end, it will generate a lot of work. Now, this is a comment that I read a lot into articles and so on. And indeed, of course, it, the program needs to be programmed, the, the models need to be retrained, data needs to be accessible. But this is quite, I would say, putting work on data science, on IT work and so on. This idea 
doesn't contribute into the other types of work. Now, that is still, it will do it on one side. On the other hand, what I'm also convinced is that twofold. First, all companies, all organizations are struggling to identify and to find the right people that are willing to work on certain subjects. So there is a lack of resources, and we can cope with that a little bit better using intelligent technology for that. And the last thing is what we have seen a lot in Belgium is that there has been, or in Europe, there has been a flood of resources or move of resources to low-cost countries. So, of course, a lot to India, a lot to China. And when you move that, you move all the layers from the executional work to the semi-intelligent work to the high-intelligent work, and you move everything at once because otherwise, otherwise it doesn't work. Just moving the low costs, low-hanging fruits to a, an offshore country, well, in the end, the quality just drops. Now, by using AI, we can automate a big part of the low added value work of the people. And therefore, by being able to automate that, well, it makes financially interesting, again, to bring the mid-level and the intelligent level back work. So if we move an outsourcing, we outsource a part of call centers or manual worker process, and this work could be partially be automated, the business case becomes, again, interesting to re-insource a large part of the work, if that makes sense for you. Yeah, yeah, that certainly does. And that's that I'm convinced that this will bring a lot of work back to our countries, to our entities, and therefore be beneficiary for everybody. And I don't know how it is currently in Europe, but in the United States, AI is everywhere. Um, and it's been like that for the last few years, but obviously it's been, you know, very loud for the last three or four months since chat and GPT came out. All everyone can do is talk about AI. I think there's just a lot of buzz around AI. Uh, what I hear a lot is there's, you know, companies that are just saying, we have AI, but they don't really have AI, you know, things like that. So for you, what do you do to really differentiate and make sure that it's clear to the market that this is real, this is artificial intelligence, it's powerful artificial intelligence, and it can be a real game changer for the banks that embrace this technology? Yeah, absolutely. Well, in order to answer that question, well, we need to understand what we mean with AI, because also in AI, there are many, many flavors, typologies, and of course, when you see what ChatGPT is doing, it's impressive for, I would say, what we, what we first see. Now, when I discuss with my data scientists, my AI specialists, they say, well, what they did is brilliant, but in the end, it's not complex. They have just used a huge load of manual work. They have used a lot of computer capacity and coding. It's not that it was so easy, but in the end, it's a lot, a lot, a lot of work to come to that result. So, yes, it's interesting. It's a game changer, probably. On the other hand, let's just demystify a little bit AI. AI, in another way, is a lot of statistics. Is use computer power to do a lot of correlations, correlation between information in order to take conclusions. So I would say AI is less complex, less advanced than, than a lot of people think. By the way, the AI principle already exists since the years 50, 60. These ideas were already the only thing we did have the compute power to manage that. So on that story, I would say, yes, I 100% comply. You need to say that you do AI to still be valuable on the markets. We see a lot of company pretending 
we see a lot of companies testing. The big difference mm -hmm. is how far are you in your testing and putting that into production. There is already one big difference. Secondly, it's how advanced are you in, in testing? Just to give you an idea, what have we been doing that I think it's different? Firstly, on the program that we are bringing on the market, we are already developing for five years. So the first three years, it was purely development and then two years of testing, tuning, until the algorithms were delivering the result that we want. And in the end, what we have done is to translate that, let's come back to the money laundering, like I said, the process, and then investigator can receive the transaction. They need to save the transaction. Well, is that now a true positive? Is that a money laundering case? Yes or no. What does the person does? It goes into the system. So bank, I say, I will create myself an image of the person. Who is the person behind that transaction? Is it the individual? Is it the company? Where is it located? Is it a stable company? Does this behavioral, is this transaction logic for this kind of person, this kind of, of transaction? So he generates himself an image of who is the person behind. And this image is based on his experience. He says, when a company of that size, of that typology, in that neighborhood, it's logic that they do that behavior. And this is what our company, our solution is just doing is building huge networks of statistical logic behind a company of that type at that area has a high propensity of being a bad person, yes or no. And that is simply it. So it's just statist statistical regression on a lot, a lot, a lot of data, on a lot, a lot of historical data. So when you simplify it like that, AI is not complex. The question is, do you provide a solution on the market where you build quite quickly a lot of the statistical analysis just to be able to pretend to have it because you need to have it if you make sense. We've seen it with Google. We've seen it with uh, Microsoft after ChatGPT where they need to provide something versus having built these statistical regression analytics over multi years, seeing what is true, yes or no. So yes, there are a lot of buzz, but I still believe that it will move into that direction, but it will take time because quality is just tuning, adapting, optimizing, like everything what is mathematics and statistics. Making sense for you? Yes, that does. Absolutely. I think I cleared up a lot of the ideas that I have in my head. And I, I think all of our listeners are also trying to navigate this world and, and really figure out how to communicate AI. A lot of companies and founders listening are obviously trying to use AI, but I think every company right now is struggling with how to communicate and educate the market and talk about and you know, what that actually means. So your perspective there and insights there are, are super valuable and super interesting. Now, last question here for you before we wrap, I, I just realized we are up on time. So let's zoom out into the future. So three, five years from today, what does this guy look like? Well, it's fine because we just had our board meeting yesterday. So I had to present uh, what is the ambition. Now, to be clear, the company was launched in March last year. We already have our first three customers outside the group, which is already positive. We have an outlook of being financially independent as of mid of next year. So uh, mm -hmm. two years after launch being profitable, which would be a, an amazing outlook. In parallel, we are working to access, first of all, the spread on international level. Like I said, we are already throughout all Europe visible, present, and discussing with, with a lot of banks. We will move to Canada, US as of end of the summer. So it's the, the, uh, the I would say, the area spread. 
And then it's the products. So we are working on AML, but we have a full roadmap of full financial crime, which goes from AML, fraud and sanctions, uh, cyber protection and everything. So we should have by 26 a full uh, pattern of solutions covering all these subjects. And in parallel, we are evolving into securities domain and into the insurance domain as well. So by 26, hopefully be relevant and be uh, really present and being some, I would say, in the market leadership on, I would say, AML financial crime and starting launching new products into uh, insurance and security domain and that on a worldwide scale. That's the ambition. Amazing. I love it. Fabrice, we are up on time, so I'm going to have to cut it here. I'd love to keep you on and, and keep asking you questions. So we'll have to save that for the part two of the interview that we can hopefully do sometime in the future. Thanks so much for taking the time to share your insights here and really educate myself and our audience. I feel like I've learned a lot about inside money laundering and how you phrase, you know, what you're doing in terms of AI was also incredibly useful. And it's just really fascinating to hear from a CEO who's building a company within a big, massive bank. So very, uh, very fun conversation. I really enjoyed it. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Brett, for the opportunity. And uh, looking forward to have uh, banks contacting us just to chit-chat. We are always open to exchange uh, experiences. Sounds great. Thanks again for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you, too. Thank you, Brett. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode.